Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. and welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. Today we're speaking with Dr. Megan Gerber, a general internist, about providing trauma-informed telehealth. Stephanie and I have been seeing a lot of practitioners in online spaces who are trying to make the transition to providing telehealth during this time of crisis, and we want to continue to do our part in facilitating woman-centered communication, whether that is in person or online. But we're especially grateful to be talking to Dr. Megan Gerber about doing telehealth with a trauma-informed lens, since this is a very very triggering time for folks. We also want folks to know that if you've missed it, we do have another episode on trauma-informed care in health more generally, and that is episode 21 with Allison Tinker. But otherwise, this one, we're putting the lens of telehealth on it. So hi, Dr. Gerber. Thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast today. So the first question we like to ask is if you could just provide a little bit of background about yourself. Hi, and thank you for having me on. I'm a general internist with a clinical and academic focus on women's health. I'm an associate professor of medicine at Boston University School of Medicine, and I work full-time in women's health at the VA Boston Healthcare System. I'm the editor of Trauma-Informed Healthcare Approaches, a guide for primary care, which is a textbook published by Springer last year. I have been doing Video Connect visits, which are actually synchronous video conferencing calls with our women's health patients in their homes since 2018. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you for being here. So we another question we always like to ask our guests is what informs your perspective? So in other words, why do you do what you do and what is most valuable to you? That's a great question. I think I first became really passionate about women's health during my internal medicine residency. I had been working with women from a state prison system, many of whom were admitted to our hospital with HIV-related illness. They were serving mandatory minimum sentences for things like drug offenses and sex work, and many, if not most of them, had trauma histories. I think that experience of working with those women really helped me learn firsthand how trauma impacts long-term health, especially women's health. So I think that was the beginning of my interest in women's health. So before we jump into telehealth specifically, can you share with our listeners what is trauma-informed care or the general principles of trauma-informed care? So trauma-informed care is truly a strengths-based approach that fosters both recovery and healing through safe and collaborative relationships. There really is no single roadmap or checklist for trauma-informed care. Rather, it requires a continuous ongoing appraisal of our approach to care and care delivery. It can also occur incrementally. So for example, if a clinician changes his, her, or their approach to care in the clinic, That can still make an important difference for patients, even if the rest of the health system lags behind and is not trauma-sensitive. 
And in this way, slowly care can change in that one clinic and the whole system may follow eventually. So there's not an instant transformation. It can be a step-by-step transition. So I know that you've covered trauma-informed care in another episode of this podcast, but the fundamental principles of trauma-informed care are safety, trustworthiness and transparency, peer support, collaboration and mutuality, empowerment, voice and choice, and then most importantly, sensitivity to cultural, historical, and gender issues. So we know that trauma is not equally distributed in society. So by applying these principles to our encounters, we can really first avoid re-traumatizing our patients, and secondly, partner with them to really access collaborative healthcare that's focused on healing and feels accessible to them rather than intimidating or frightening. So obviously, providing trauma-informed care is something that we should all strive for all the time. But why do you think that trauma-informed care is especially important during this pandemic? Yeah, well, the COVID-19 pandemic is a big collective trauma. It's also disproportionately impacting vulnerable populations, many of whom have already experienced previous trauma. So not only interpersonal traumas, but historical trauma, racism, community violence. Many neighborhoods are being hit especially hard. Social distancing, as we're calling it, although it's necessary to prevent the spread of infection, is also disrupting the social support networks that many people rely on. And we know that social support mitigates the adverse effects of trauma. So the stay-at-home orders may also be resulting in women being trapped at home with abusive partners and children similarly exposed to abusive situations without the safe haven of going off to school daily. So collective trauma, along with exacerbating a history of trauma for certain populations, and potentially COVID-19 may be creating very dangerous situations at home, especially for women and children. And I have been seeing reports where there is definitely spikes in like intimate partner violence, which is heartbreaking. So now that we kind of put this telehealth lens on there, in what ways, if any, does providing trauma-informed care via telehealth change versus providing trauma-informed care in person? This is such an interesting and important question. And there are definitely a number of challenges with telehealth but there are also opportunities. I was thinking, though, I should really take a moment to be sure we define telehealth for the audience, just to be sure we all are talking about the same thing. So the federal definition of telehealth is the use of electronic information and telecommunications technologies to support long-distance clinical health care. So, for example, some forms of telehealth connect patients who might, for example, be in a more remote site or clinic to a specialist at a major medical center. Here, I believe what we are focusing on is live synchronous video conferencing. It's basically a two-way audiovisual link between a patient at home and a clinician, literally like FaceTime. So to focus a little bit on the differences between telehealth and in-person care, 
with a a trauma-informed lens. First of all, unlike inpatient medical visits, we clinicians do not control the environment. So we don't know who's in the room, who might be coming into the room. We really have to rely on our patient to let us know whether she feels safe and comfortable to proceed with the visit. In some ways, remote virtual visits really can return a measure of control back to our patients because we're seeing and talking to them in their own space, in their own home. You know, things like travel, in-office logistics, transitions, interruptions are minimized. And patients may actually feel safer and more comfortable and feel like they have a greater degree of control. A really important first step that folks have to learn is establishing eye contact. So while it's really tempting to look at the patient's image while you're speaking to her or your own image on the screen, directing your gaze right to the camera will establish a feeling and sense of direct eye contact for the patient. So I think a lot of us, when we first do telehealth, would be really shocked at how it looks like we're looking all around the room and we're looking at our screen. And so really making sure when you talk to the patient that you're looking right at the camera. Another important difference between in-person visits and telehealth is there is a big loss of body language um, when you're doing telehealth. And some of the cues that you might get from a trauma-exposed patient when you're sitting with her in clinic may be lost in a telehealth visit. So it can be harder to detect how someone is feeling without asking more explicit questions. So explicit check-in questions like, are you comfortable? Or you grew quiet. Do you have a concern? Really just explicitly checking in with the patient because you are losing some of the information that you would normally get in a face-to-face visit. We recommend always allowing the patient to choose the room where the visit takes place and don't suggest the bedroom. So those are just a few of the tips that will help folks who are new to telehealth to really implement trauma-informed care in telehealth visits. I think those are brilliant. I definitely am guilty of when I'm doing Zoom whatever, I'm looking at the image of the person or my image and not at the camera. So that was, yeah, that was kind of good to make that explicit to folks. And then I also really like your discussion of, you know, since we're losing now body language and ability to read that, the need to ask explicit check-in questions. And and I could see where it would be really natural to say, oh, you know, just go in your bedroom. That's probably the most private place, but how that could also... Again, when you think of this layer of trauma-informed care, that that's not necessarily the best suggestion. So thank you for those. So can I ask a little bit more detail or I guess guidance, especially on the eye contact? So I never really thought about that. Like if you're looking at the person, it looks like you're looking down, whereas you're looking at the camera, you're you're not able to see the person. Do you have any kind of advice about that? Like, especially when we're trying to read some nonverbal cues. Yeah. So I also should have mentioned lighting. I noticed when I've been doing a little bit of telework and when I do my telehealth visits from my home, the lighting has not been as good as it is in the clinic. And I've noticed that a couple of my patients seemed a little bit uncomfortable with the telehealth visits from my home. And I realized that part of it was that I was backlit. So making sure that you're not sitting in front of a window and that your face is visible to the patient. Because again, if someone has experienced trauma, if someone is concerned that 
they're not getting your full attention, which is a common thing among trauma-exposed patients, really letting them know that you are looking directly at them. Often people, when they first start doing telehealth visits, sit way too close to the camera. So sitting back, because remember, in a face-to-face visit, you're not sitting directly in front of the patient. You're really not in her personal space. You're a good professional distance away. So sitting farther back will make it easier for you to establish a good angle with the camera. People talk about something called gaze angle, which is the angle between your head and the camera. And there are ways of you using a laptop, putting it up on a book, making sure that you're sitting at the same level as the camera. So there are some technical details. And I I just, because many people listening to this may be new at telehealth, I think the most simple advice is to try to sit in an area that's well lit, try to look at the camera. Don't worry too much about making everything perfect, especially if this is someone you already have a relationship with. Reestablishing that rapport is going to matter so much more than whether you're perfectly looking at the camera. I will say that often And I believe that this is a trauma-informed practice, that if I'm looking at a patient and I need to then flip to their medical record to look up their med list or look up their allergies, I will actually say to them, and I've gotten in the habit of doing this, you'll see me looking away for a few minutes. I'm peeking at your medical record to make sure I can see your med list. Or you may hear me typing and it's because I'm putting in orders. So we get used to narrating what we do in medical encounters that are trauma informed. And that's a good practice to adopt during telehealth as well. And again, for folks who are new, it might be hard to have all of this happen perfectly every time. But I think looking at the camera is a good first step. I hope I answered your question. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you. I'm so glad we got into that. And I'm going to ask another kind of follow-up question. I don't know if you can speak to this at all, but do you have any suggestions? I know you said, you know, light from the front, but what about what's behind you? Like, what kind of things should we keep in mind that's in our background? Yeah, and I actually think the best light is often from the side. And again, this is not, you know, we're talking about doing telehealth during a pandemic and connecting to our patients. So I, I really don't want folks to be worried about creating the perfect set for their telehealth. But yes, background is very important. So a couple of things, dress professionally. So even though you're at home, I would suggest wearing what you would wear for an office visit. Patients who've experienced trauma like consistency, if they're used to seeing you in office clothing, it would be nice for them to see you the way you usually look. Again, if you're on duty and wearing scrubs, don't worry about it. I mean, ultimately, do the best you can. Avoid really cluttered, chaotic looking backgrounds. So if you're at home sitting in front of a bookshelf or a plain wall, might be preferable to sitting in front of an overflowing toy chest. So if you can create a, even if you can't create a professional background, creating a simpler background so there's less distraction around you is a good practice. 
That's a good question, Nicole. Yeah, because I was thinking too, like some things in our house might put people off. Like if you have maybe a religious thing or a piece of artwork that might be traumatizing that you might not think of it as that. But yeah, I never thought about that. But that's a good point. Okay, so in that same vein, what are some other dynamics or factors that providers need to be cognizant of when we are connecting with people in their homes or personal space? So for patients who've not done telehealth before, you know, upfront asking them if they have any concerns or how they're feeling, establishing trust and safety at the outset are important. I will often ask them right at the very beginning of the visit, what's on your mind? How are you feeling? What would you like to discuss today? So really letting them know that you care about their comfort and safety during the visit and that they are going to have the time and space to tell you what's on their mind and be really in in charge of the visit in many ways. I like to warn of possible ambient noises. And this is certainly true when I'm doing telehealth from our clinic. There could be construction sounds. There are often loud doors slamming, which can be frightening to patients. So warning of possible ambient noises. Some people have pets in their homes that might bark, warn the patient ahead of time that there could be barking or door slamming. Also, I think we need to be really sensitive to the patient's feelings around revealing her personal space during the visit. I would avoid making comments about someone's home, even if they're positive. You really want to focus on the person and not her ambient environment. The other day, I had a telehealth visit with a woman who had been very, very reluctant to do telehealth. And she had really avoided doing it. And I think that her first telehealth experience was with her mental health provider. And so when she and I finally did a telehealth visit the other day with her consent, I noticed that she had a sheet or a beautiful piece of fabric just kind of draped across the background. And she was sitting in front of the sheet. And she actually said to me, you know, I've set my room up so I don't have to worry about people like looking at my stuff or looking at how messy I am. So, you know, I thanked her for that. And I praised her. And I said, it's wonderful that you figured out how to make uh, this modality comfortable for you. Because she had been very, very disappointed that she was losing her in-person visits, especially her therapy visits. So people are very sensitive about their homes. You know, and since you bring that up, I wonder if you could also speak to what happens if you're in a visit and the patient or the woman does become triggered. How do you manage that over the phone? Well, I think that that does happen. And I think the first thing to do is to ask the patient if she would like to stop the visit, ask her if the visit, if it would be more comfortable for her to to continue the visit on the phone. We can try grounding techniques. If the patient wishes to continue the video visit, we can try grounding techniques. So some examples of grounding techniques would be counting forwards or backwards, talking about a neutral topic. So I know that some of the psychologists we work with have come up with suggestions for addressing visits where somebody just becomes very dysregulated or frightened. And I think the first thing to do is to say, would you like the video to stop? Would you like me to give you a call? And that would be the first thing. The patient wishes to continue trying a grounding exercise or some deep breathing could be a a potential next step. 
So when you do this grounding exercise, just want to make sure that our listeners have the tools and can understand this. Is this something that you count with them or do you have them count? Are you coaching the breathing? Like what's your role in this grounding exercise? Or you could even practice it with us if you want. I would usually just um, ask the patient to um, focus on her breath if she feels comfortable doing that. Ask her what she typically finds helpful when she feels distraught the way she feels now. So she might say that breathing helps her or having a cup of tea helps her. Typically with grounding, we would ask them to count or we would count with them. It really is a matter of comfort. And I think really giving the patient permission not to complete the visit is really important. And then validating her feelings. If she says to me, I'm so paranoid about cameras in my house, I really just can't do this. Let's talk on the phone. And I think, you know, we probably will be talking about consent in a little while. And we can talk about sort of some of the safety and emergency things to do so that if you do lose a connection with someone, you are able to check in with them. Yeah, why don't we just go on into that? So like you had said, that consent is a big pillar of trauma-informed care and consent for everything or every contact. So how can we ensure proper consent and safety via telehealth? Yeah, so I think the first and most important consideration is to be sure your patient even wants a video visit. And the reason I say that is that I have heard that in some places now, video visits are being reimbursed at higher rates than our safe standard phone visit. So I know that there are places where clinicians may feel some pressure to do video visits because their visit volumes are down. So I have heard a little bit about this. Interesting. Yeah. So make sure, you know, patients should be freely able to choose a phone visit. She doesn't want to do a video visit. So again, as you said, trauma-informed care should foster choice and consent. You know, another issue as an aside is just that not everybody has access to smartphones, tablets, computers. Not all our patients even have wireless, you know, or Wi-Fi in their, in their homes. So again, in terms of health equity, just trying to be sure that we offer people a choice. So informed consent needs to be obtained for telehealth. And informed consent agreements apparently can vary by state. So one good resource is the Center for Connected Health Policy. They have some examples of informed consent agreements, and that's done verbally with the patient at the beginning of the visit. We also always verify the patient's location. Where are you? Get the address. I mean, especially now, if somebody passes out or becomes very short of breath and you don't, all you know is that the patient's at home and you don't know the exact address, it will be hard to get help to that patient right away. So verify the patient's exact location and the callback number, the emergency contact information at the outset of the call. Another really important thing, and we talked about the increases in intimate partner violence. So it's possible that we'll get consent at the beginning of a telehealth visit and then potentially become concerned during the visit. So for example, if you're talking to a patient, and I should say that I do encourage all of my patients to use either headphones or earbuds if they're in a home where anyone else is present. That's just a routine thing. I always suggest that my patients try to use some kind of listening device for their own privacy. So if you see a patient suddenly look up 
or off to the side as if someone may have entered the room, you can ask a yes or no question. Is it safe for us to keep talking now? And she can nod her head or say yes or no. Do I need to call 911? So those would be some safety interventions. But yes, we are always getting consent beginning. And I think those are some good basic practices. I like that last part you said about somebody walking in. I just know, given all the meetings that we've been having via televideo, people's kids or dogs or spouses or whoever is walking in, and then not just assuming that somebody's just needing something, but that it could be dangerous. Absolutely. So I know we've gone over quite a few tips and I mean, you've had some things that I definitely didn't consider. Do you have any other tips or things that providers need to keep in mind when providing telehealth visits? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, one important thing, while physical exam capability is limited during virtual visits, we are going to need to do physical exams or parts of physical exams. And so it's very important to apply uh, principles of trauma-informed care. So consent for an exam and or removal of clothing should always be obtained. Don't order somebody to take off their shirt. Removal of clothing should be minimized just because someone's in the comfort of her own home or in a very private room does not mean that she wants to completely undress. And in fact, being on a camera could be frightening and could make removing clothing feel even less safe than it does in the clinic. So if somebody has a rash, asking her to um, move the item of clothing far enough to see the rash would be a good strategy. And always have patients fully clothed before you start discussing the plan of action. Again, for physical exams, and even more important for telehealth exams, is to avoid personalizing language during exams. So for example, we'll hear people say, open your mouth for me, which can sound way too personal and can be very triggering uh, for a patient who's had an assault. So that could be replaced by, in order for me to evaluate your sore throat, it would be useful at this point to look in the back of your throat throat and get the patients in the back of the throat, excuse me, not your throat, but the throat. So really trying to depersonalize some of the language, always asking for consent and permission is very important. So I've done telehealth visits before, but it's usually more kind of a conversation more than anything, never these physical assessments. So I think that's an important piece that you mentioned. Is there any other tips that you have about the physical piece? Like, are you trying to do physical assessments as much as you can? Or how are you navigating what you should physically assess versus not? This is very challenging. And I don't think that there's any right answer. And I actually did even speak with some gynecology colleagues before I came on the podcast today and just trying to figure out to what extent women's health exams are being done in a telehealth setting. One of the things that actually came up today is whether we should have a chaperone for exams. So for example, the patient has a rash on her breast and um, needs to show the rash to the clinician through the camera. Should there be a chaperone present the way there typically would be in the clinic? And the best guidance that we came up with is to listen to the patient and ask the patient if the patient, and you can ask the patient at the outset, would you feel more comfortable having someone else in the room? 
Would you feel more comfortable being alone? You know, assaying the patient's comfort and figuring out what's best for her. I am not and I'm just speaking anecdotally, I am not aware of anybody doing genital examinations through VVC. Those patients are generally being brought into clinic. Obviously, we're limiting in COVID-19. Nationally, we're limiting bringing patients in for non-emergent conditions. But I should say to the listening audience that one of the big concerns we have in healthcare right now is visits for other emergency conditions are way down. So if you do need to be seen, we do want to see you and we'll do our best to keep you safe and away from any COVID patients who may be in the clinic or in urgent care. So I may not be answering your question, but I think the really important thing is that we do a a limited physical exam. We do the physical exam that's comfortable for the patient and expedites her care in a way that keeps her safe, but also gets her the medical care she needs. I am not aware of anybody doing pelvic or genital exams in, in with using this kind of modality. Those patients are generally still being seen in person. I hope that that answers your question. Yeah, it definitely does. I think we all are doing this as we go through this pandemic is how is this going to change the future? And the VA has been doing telehealth for a while. But like we talked about earlier, that this might be very new to some of our listeners. And so just kind of thinking about how maybe a lot of people become more comfortable with telehealth patients and clinicians. And if you feel like that could be a positive thing for people who have experienced trauma. Oh, absolutely. So while it's hard right now to do something new, and there's just been such a rapid scale up of telehealth during this pandemic, there is an accumulated practice and research experience, notably in telemental health, that truly supports that those with trauma histories can be highly satisfied with telehealth visits. And some of the research um, suggests that the so-called virtual space that's created by video conferencing promotes safety and transparency. And there have been studies of even, you know, trauma treatment. And I want to be clear, we're not talking about trauma treatment here. We're not talking about trauma-focused care. We're talking about trauma-informed women's health so general medical care, but we can take the findings from the literature that show that patients with trauma histories, patients with PTSD feel very safe and actually find that it enables them to get treatment. And we can apply that to our work in in trauma-informed care. So I really think that the findings from the telemental health literature and also just the accumulated experience of systems like VA and other systems that have been doing this for a while support that trauma-informed primary care can be very successfully delivered. It's certainly telehealth will never take the place of an in-person visit, but I think for trauma-exposed patients, it can be very effective, certainly by removing the need to travel, removing interruptions, logistics in the clinic, and it really gives us time back for that collaboration that's so important in trauma-informed care. 
So you just brought up time and then before when you were previously responding, you had mentioned time and it made me think about how is, you know, I think of like troubleshooting, like, oh, people not getting connected right away or having issues or even just the visit itself, even if it went perfectly. How is time working into that? Are the visits longer, shorter? What's the role of time in this situation? So that's a great question. And actually, a few weeks ago, there was a Twitter chat, a primary care Twitter chat on telehealth. And several of the primary care clinicians on the chat were saying, you know what, I'm still running over because I just love talking to my patients. And it's still hard to stay on time with telehealth. So I think Again, for folks who are new to telehealth, there often is that difficulty connecting. And I think if you can use your team and really try to train a medical assistant or a health technician or an LPN to connect with the patient first and really do a dry run with the patient and make sure the patient is able to use the technology, that can give back some of that important face-to-face time to the patient and the clinician. I really do believe, having done this now for probably close to two years, that the visits, because there isn't movement of the patient from room to room and waiting in the waiting room and traveling, that the patients are often more relaxed during the visit. I mean, I've had trauma exposure women walk through the lobby or come from public transportation and they're incredibly on edge because just getting to the clinic was unsettling and frightening. So patients are often, once they're used to the virtual modality, they're often more relaxed, they're often more centered and part of the visit. So even though I think telehealth visits can last as long as regular face-to-face visits, I think there really is a sense that more of the visit is being spent on the face-to-face collaboration between patient and clinician. And I think when you look at the tenets of trauma-informed care, which really is a variant of patient-centered care, telehealth really does a wonderful service to both trauma-informed care and patient-centered care. I really believe that. I love that. Yeah, me too. I had a uh, telehealth visit for flu, and I think it was a nurse practitioner, no, a PA, physician's assistant. She normally is faculty and hasn't seen patients in a while, so she was kind of thrown into this new COVID influenza-like clinic telehealth thing. And then also it was telehealth, which she had never done. But surprisingly, it was such a nice little visit. She just chatted and asked me kind of more personal questions than I think I would get into in a normal type of urgent care situation. (laughs) So it was quite nice. And I, you know, and I was in my bed. Yeah, I actually had my first telehealth visit too. In case you're wondering, Poison Ivy is not social distancing right now. And so I got myself a nice little case of that. And so obviously I didn't want to go in because I knew I had. And so I was actually, I think she's a nurse practitioner and it was her first televisit as well. And it was kind of funny because you had mentioned the angle of the camera. And I definitely, I think mostly just saw her forehead and eyes. And, you know, like the background was someone else's office. And so there was definitely a lot lots of things happening. I mean, it worked fine for me, but that definitely could have been a much different situation for someone else. But it was nice. And I could put my arm in front of the camera so she could see it. I didn't have to leave my house. And no, it wasn't too bad. 
Yeah. And actually, you know, another thought, maybe something that people are already doing, but there's no reason why you can't do a test run with a colleague with any one of these telehealth platforms. So folks should feel like if they need to practice, they they hopefully could do it with a colleague or with someone on your team before you actually do your first visit with the patient. But I think, you know, some of these very basic principles of trauma-informed care are very consonant with patient-centered care principles, and it really does work on telehealth. I do think, you know, your question about the patient becomes distraught or dysregulated or triggered is a challenging one. And I think the important thing there would be to ask the patient if she wants to end the visit. And I know I'm repeating myself, but I'm really thinking back to that, you know, making sure the patient really wants to continue the visit, offering the telephone as an alternative And the patient wants to stay on with you, you know, asking her what kind of strategies she's used in the past to help herself feel better. Our patients are really the expert on what they need. Since you brought that up again, could you talk a little bit, I'm trying to remember in Allison Tinker's episode, I remember that she talked about sort of the signs of somebody being triggered. And it was more in that face-to-face clinic example. Could you talk about the signs that a patient might have if they're triggered over telehealth? That's a really great question. So we were talking earlier about losing body language. So I think one of the things that is important to recognize is a dissociative reaction. And dissociative reactions at their most simple can look like a patient has frozen or spaced out. So sometimes a patient will just freeze or stop talking. Sometimes their eyes will seem unfocused and they'll just be looking around the room. Other Signs and symptoms of a dissociative reaction could include fidgeting or rhythmic movement. The fidgeting and the rhythmic movement might be very hard to pick up on a telehealth visit. So if somebody freezes, somebody who was previously focused on you suddenly is looking all around the room or unable to look straight ahead, um, at that point, I would stop the visit, ask the patient if they're okay, and try some grounding. So you're asking a really great question, like what would dissociation look like in a telehealth visit? I would say the patient might freeze, might appear to space out, might have difficulty making eye contact or focusing, and you may not see some of the other body language type signs. And that's a time to stop the visit and check in with them and ask a very explicit question. Are you okay? Are you with me? Would you like to continue the visit? Yeah, that's good that you asked that because I just keep thinking about all these, again, all these meetings that you're having on video and people kind of space out anyway. And I think because there's that you're not face to face, people are like, Oh, I'm gonna look at my phone. And you know, I'm gonna, so they might be kind of disassociating just because they're not focused on because they're at home versus they might be triggered. And so asking, I think, are you okay? And clarifying, you know, what's happening for you. Right. And patients will not always perfectly look right at the camera. I've had patients look away from the computer because they're thinking and they're they're giving a history. And that's okay, but they're generally there's a dialogue going on. They're discussing a series of symptoms. They're discussing what they've tried for a headache. I think with dissociation, there is a disruption in kind of normal consciousness and patient really will 
appear to freeze or stop talking. Those would be some of the more common things. Instead of looking distracted or looking, they might look a little distracted, but I think that most folks will know it, especially if they know the patient. And again, I'm not, I'm not a mental health provider. I don't provide therapy. I think our mental health colleagues probably have a lot more experience with picking up on dissociative reactions on telehealth. And so this is as much my best guess as anything, just have to be forthright about not being an expert on dissociation. What is your thoughts or suggestions on, say your provider, you do this televisit, and you know maybe just something's not sitting right. Like you get off the call and you're like, were they disassociating? Did I trigger them? There's just maybe this feeling, you know, and I think that's a lot different when you get off the phone and you can't just check in with them right away. But is there a way to follow up with them? Or what course of action would you recommend for a provider who's maybe feeling like the visit didn't end on a great note? Yeah, so there's several thoughts. So one would be to call the patient back on the phone if you feel comfortable doing that. Another idea would be to have a team member do that. So again, I I know not all of the audience works in primary care. If you do have the, I won't say luxury, but the benefit of knowing this patient well, there might be someone on your team like a nurse or a medical assistant who could reach out and say, hey, you know, doctor or so-and-so was concerned about you. I'm just checking in to make sure sure everything's okay. And some medical homes, some medical teams have mental health clinicians attached. The other day I did ask one of our, I was speaking with a distraught patient and I asked her, I told her that I work closely with a psychologist and I asked her if she would find a call from my psychology colleague helpful. And she did accept that. So again, even though, especially during COVID, many of us are working virtually, we should have a quick way of being able to be in contact with someone from the team. So that is a good consideration. If you're on a telehealth visit, you're not sitting in a clinic surrounded by a whole team. Do you have a way of sending a text or an IM to a member of your team that you're concerned about someone that would be a good thing to establish? Yeah, that's a really good point. So as a healthcare provider, you are obviously like in the thick of this situation. You're very close to how this pandemic is impacting folks. Have you had any surprising or unexpected moments, maybe good or bad, that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I think one of the things that I've found incredibly touching is just how concerned our patients are about us. No matter how frightened they are, they're always asking how we are. And and that's just been incredibly moving. And, you know, I always, if someone asks me how I am, I always try to turn the conversation back to her well-being. But that's been kind of a gift during this time. I really do think that there have been some really important conversations that might not have happened in a traditional office visit. I have had a couple of patients disclose very personal, intimate things to me on television health. And I think you always need to validate and thank the patient for using this modality and let the patient know that this isn't their only chance to be in touch with you. They can call back, they can have another visit. I think there's so much in the media about how busy healthcare is that I worry that our patients are not reaching out to us and asking for what they need. And 
trauma-exposed patients, I think, in general, often don't advocate as well for themselves as they should. And that's part of recovery from trauma is really learning to be a good self-advocate. Another really wonderful thing has been meeting my patients' pets. A number of my patients have been bringing their pets on camera Um, I don't ask. Um, They introduce me. And it's just wonderful to watch the joy on their faces as they interact with their dog or cat. It's typically a dog or cat. It's been a bird once. And I think animals are such an important source of emotional support that that's something I would never have imagined. And I've really enjoyed that. You know, that's a really good point, because I feel like the VA is fairly open to people bringing pets to visits if there's some emotional support animals, but I don't think that's necessarily true of other healthcare organizations. So the telehealth really sort of allows that the patient to be with their animal. I like seeing people's pets too in meetings. So Dr. Gerber, we have talked about so many amazing things. I am so excited about this. Do you have any additional resources for providers either regarding telehealth or trauma-informed care more broadly that you'd like to share? I can certainly send you some links. The VAHSRD has put out a really nice pamphlet on providing telehealth care. So I'd be happy to share that. As you asked me earlier, I did edit a textbook on trauma-informed care. We did not specifically cover telehealth in in the textbook, but it is a, a useful reference. I know that ACE is aware, which is the movement in California to screen patients for adverse childhood experiences, will be having a webinar at the end of the month on trauma-informed telehealth. So that is the only very specific resource that I'm familiar with at this time, but I'd be happy to share those links with you. Yeah, that would be great. And I'll also make a plug. I have read the book that she has edited. And what's really cool about it is that some of the chapters really stand alone by themselves. You have a nice introduction and then there's different chapters on special populations like focus of care on African American men, gender minority patients, veterans, and then what does this look like in different settings like primary care, maternity care, pediatrics? So I will definitely do a shameless self-plug for the book that you edited as well. Thank you. That's great. Really nice of you. So before we wrap up, Stephanie, do you have any more questions? Or Dr. Gerber, do you have any more things that you want us to ask you before we do our closing comment? This was a really wonderful discussion. I mean, I guess I would just say that we're definitely operating in a very frightening time. And often our patients, especially the ones we already know, but I have actually in the last few weeks seen a couple of new, I'll say seen in quotes, a couple of new patients via telehealth. And I'd never, ever met these women in real life before. And they were just very grateful for the connection and for getting their care started. And I think while it can feel daunting to do your first few telehealth visits, remember that what's really important is listening and validating and, you know, adhering to the important fundamentals of trauma-informed care, which are establishing safety, collaborating, being trustworthy, being aware of what the patient's gender or other historical or cultural issues might be, and really listening are so important and, and they can be more important than having the perfect lighting or the perfect camera angle. I think that's an important takeaway. 
Yeah, thank you. That's definitely a good summary. That is. So Dr. Gerber, I would personally like to thank you so much for your time and commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health through communication. Do you have any other last thoughts that you would like to add before we end? Yeah, so I think I said a little bit of this before, but I'm sure that for those of you who are new to this, it can feel kind of frightening and daunting to really change the way that you're working. Trauma-exposed women really appreciate connection, and they appreciate you adapting your care to stay connected with them and to deliver care at this um, time that's very re-traumatizing and frightening to many. And we, we do know uh, from the literature and from research that telehealth can be as effective as an in-person visit. There are always going to be things that we cannot, that cannot replace an in-person visit. There are always going to be times when the patient really needs to be seen and fully examined. But I think we are entering a new era in which we can provide a lot of effective care through this modality. So I, I thank both of you for these really thoughtful questions and for this opportunity to talk with you. Yes, and thank you. We always know that our guests are busy, but especially now. So we really appreciate your flexibility and availability, and we're excited to share this with our listeners. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. Oh.